Welcome to episode 75 of the Celebrating Differences podcast. Our, mit- our guest today is Mitch Solomon, former judge, and he's got an interesting story, but it comes down to people just want to be heard. So let's go see what's going on with Mitch Solomon. But first, let me introduce my co-host, Ani Colt. Ani? Hi, it's great to be back. We had kind of a break from doing these podcasts because of the local election in Austin and actually national election. So we're getting back to it and we're we're in the holidays. It's Christmas is soon and Hanukkah is going on. You'll see our guest has um, some of our holiday teddy bears behind him just to let you know. All right, so let's get to our guest. Uh, his name is Mitch Solomon. He's a former municipal judge in the city of Austin, and he's been around a while. So we met him in Tai Chi. So we'll be talking about lots of things before this day is over. And there we go. Mitch, how are you? I'm wonderful. It's nice to be here. Doing good. Thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. So what year were you born? I was born in 1953. 1953, okay. 69 years old. 69. Still having a hard time uh, believing I'm 69. (laughs) So that was Korean War time, uh, somewhere around in there. Mm, A little after the Korean War. So you're old enough to have been right there for Vietnam. Right there for Vietnam. And those kind of things. Where did you grow up, Mitch? I grew up in Houston, Texas, in Linkwood. Lakewood in Houston, Texas. Linkwood. Linkwood? Linkwood. It was was right in, it was, I grew up on, pretty much on South Braveswood Boulevard in Houston. Okay. So what, what was that neighborhood like? It was a, it was a nice neighborhood. It was a middle class neighborhood. Uh, I could walk to school or ride my bike to elementary school. Uh, Did you? Uh, sometime. Occasionally. Occasionally. Okay. Uh, sometime. I guess my, my mom wasn't working, so she would take me to uh, elementary school sometimes, or most of the time I'd walk. Once it would, What I remember is being, is being able to walk to school. I was maybe five or six, seven blocks away from okay. elementary school. And once you got off my street, which was a busy street, uh, there, were, there was not really any traffic, so I could ride my bike or, or walk. Oh, great. Yeah. I had one older sister who was like four years older, so I had to follow her path. <laughs> four years is a lot of years at that time. Four years is a lot of years. Well, it was really three and a half, but it was like she was four years ahead of me in school. But, okay. Uh, I still had to follow her. And they all, a lot of the teachers remembered her. So. <laughs> so and I, compared you to her. And compared me. So I had to put up with that. I have a four-year-older brother and a four-year-younger sister, so we had some interesting yeah, interchanges there with the teachers. Well, at one point, I became a middle child, but I didn't become a middle child till I was 13 and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and... Uh, Just in the midst of puberty. That's right. <laughs> Just what you needed. <laughs> Just what I needed. I was actually... Uh, my, my mom was pregnant and was sitting on the... It's called the Bima which is like at the front of the temple when I was becoming a bar mitzvah. Ah, okay. So that was, that was a little odd. A little uh, odd. But when she had the, my little brother, it's like, 
she was pretty old for at that time for having a kid. So it's like she had the kid, my brother and I had to take care of him pretty, pretty mm-hmm. much. I would get up with him in the, at night and change his diapers and, and it seems like I was taking care of him. So it was a learning experience. Also. A good, a learning experience. And what did you learn, Mitch? Uh, well, I thought I learned how to take care of kids, but then uh, it didn't. Uh, I didn't quite remember when I had my uh, own. So okay, <laughs> you know, whatever whatever I learned didn't really you know go go forward to when I had my own kids. So. Did you learn responsibility? Yeah, you know, I probably didn't have a, a lot of responsibility, but I took it upon myself to be responsible. I think okay. uh, I was. A, I think I would think of myself as a responsible kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, and I think my mom needed the help, and so I was glad to to help. But and you know, it was my my little brother. <laughs> so I always wanted a little brother, just not quite, you know, after <laughs> that much time. <laughs> so uh, I took care of him, and you know, as I as I grew up and he got older, you know, my friends would come by visit, come by the house and he'd hang on my leg or hang on my friend's legs until, until I left, you know, and so, you know, he was maybe four when I left for college. Yeah. So, and I regret that I didn't really keep, I guess I didn't really keep that much in touch with him. Uh, you know, the only time I came home was for summers, and if I, if I came home for the summers, and you know, it was the only time I would see him. So I wouldn't see him for you know eight or nine months during the year. So we weren't real close, but we were trying to get closer now. Oh, great! So where'd you go to college? I went to college at UT. For I was an undergraduate at UT, and I went to law school at UT. At that time, UT was quite a bargain. Uh, yeah. I, I thought about, I was one of those kind of, like I said, it was the early 70s when I was going off to college. So I was thinking maybe I wanted to go to Berkeley, uh, <laughs> do, do that sort of okay. thing, you know, yeah, where, where things were happening. Uh, but I looked at what it would cost to go to Berkeley and what it would cost to go to UT, and I decided I better just go to UT because it I think my tuition was less than $150 a semester. Wow. So you couldn't beat that. And housing was was pretty inexpensive also, really. I lived in nice housing and uh, places I later ended up suing, but it was that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. But, but it was, I ended up, you know, I lived at Doby. Uh, for uh, my first year when I came here, which that's was one of the big dormitories, right? Big dormitory. It was a private dorm, but it was just a block off campus, so it was and it was relatively new at that time. So uh, I got to live there. Like I said later. Later on, I ended up getting to sue them, <laughs> but that was many years later. Yeah. Okay. So, did you specialize in anything at law school? Uh, in law school, I thought I was going to be a criminal lawyer. Okay. I thought I would defend people's rights, make sure that everybody who was 
not guilty would, you know, would get their day in court. Or even if they were guilty, I guess they'd get their day in court. Uh, and so if I specialized in anything, it was criminal law. And I figured when I got out of, got out of a law school, I would go be a criminal lawyer, defend people's rights. And then I got out of law school and moved, immediately moved to Colorado to follow my uh, later to become wife. <laughs> okay, to, not yet wife. Not yet, not yet wife. She, okay. But she was, you know, I figured she was the love of my life, and so she was in going to school in Colorado, and so we talked, and she was going to go to grad school in Denver, and so I would follow her to Colorado. We'd move to Colorado. Well, that was a great time to move to Denver. It wasn't hot yet. No. Well, it was, it, was a, it, it was a good time. Well, I, I got out of law school and decided, well, I'm going to take the Texas bar exam anyway, even before I moved to Colorado, just, just in case. So I took the Texas bar. So I stayed in Austin for most of the summer and then took the bar exam. I don't know if I can't remember if it was late July or, or August. And then you passed the first time. I passed the first time, and, Good for you. and went to uh, then went back to Houston, packed up all everything I had, and moved to Colorado. Drove to Colorado, and lived in Denver with uh, my wife Monica for uh, seven or eight months, I guess, uh, in a little basement apartment uh, in. Uh, Washington Park, right outside Washington Park in Denver. It was a wonderful little place. Uh, and so I was, I, I couldn't really get a job. I don't, know if, I don't know how hard I tried. I couldn't get a job. I didn't figure until I'd passed the Colorado bar. So I started studying for the Colorado bar uh, and then took that. And I must have taken that in. Again, probably uh, in the summer when it when it was uh, offered, and almost didn't have to take the Colorado bar because I'd done well enough on the Texas bar. Uh, they had a, they had a multi state section. I'd done well enough on that where I shouldn't have had to take the Colorado bar, but uh, Colorado changed their law where you had to take the bar anyway <laughs> if you were a new lawyer. So I had to learn. I had to learn Colorado law and take their bar exam. So I did that, and then got a uh, passed the bar. Found out on Halloween that I'd passed the bar. I remember, I was I was working for a a, a little place that was it was a, a long distance. Uh, company that sold office supplies that was selling office supplies on the phone so it was halloween so we were dressed so i was dressed up as a pirate <laughs> had a hook on my on my hand uh got home and opened the mail and there was my bar results so it was you know completely off the wall <laughs> that i had passed the colorado bar so then i ended up getting a couple of job offers i i was offered a job with the Brighton District Attorney's Office, and I was offered a job 
uh, with the Pueblo County Legal Services Office, which was a civil office. And it turned out Brighton was very conservative. And, but it would have been doing criminal law. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought about it and they said, yeah, you could come, but you have to shave your beard first off. I had, I had I had a beard and I had a little bit of a long hair. So to go to work for the Brighton DA, I would have had to toe the line. Uh, I've been, you know, look, at least looked like I was a conservative. Uh, or I could go to work for uh, this legal aid office in Pueblo that had a, the director of the office was just this amazing gentleman who was a civil rights attorney, longtime civil rights attorney. He'd been a uh, professor at the University of Colorado, uh, and it just seemed like a wonderful opportunity to, to work for this guy or with this guy. So I said, well, I'm moving to Pueblo. <laughs> so I practiced civil law. How big uh, was Pueblo then? Pueblo was about 100,000 people. Oh, that's sizable. It was a sizable town. And, <clears throat> it, and a lot of people just go to go through Pueblo because it's kind of a, it's the gateway to Colorado. You, it's right on the highway that goes from New Mexico and Texas to Colorado Springs and Denver mm-hmm. up north. But when I moved to Pueblo and right when I moved there, uh, their steel factory closed. It was a, a big steel town. So all of a sudden, uh, where I don't know how busy legal services had been before, all of a sudden there were all these people in Pueblo who were uh, indigent, didn't have jobs, and needed needed uh, legal help. So I was very busy with a general general civil practice basically i did a lot of a lot of divorces and child custody cases eviction cases a lot of people being evicted i handled some uh, i got to handle some uh social security fraud cases where, uh, and there were some inter- there were some very interesting cases uh when i moved i said i grew up in Houston so i wasn't real uh, capable of dealing with cold weather and, and ice <laughs> and snow. And when I moved to Denver, they had the coldest winter, coldest Thanksgiving ever. And I remember the first week I was there, I was driving down one of the roads and did a 360 in my car. So, turn, yeah, so, uh, but I learned, I learned to live with it. I could put up with it, but, uh, I worked for legal aid and, and really enjoyed it, made a lot of good friends and the the person I was working for, the the director was a wonderful person. Well that's you said something earlier about you wanted to help people. I and wanted it to sounds help. like you were. I was I think I was helping a lot of people. Uh I, and that's what I was looking to do. And uh it was nice. I didn't have to go out and seek clients. I didn't yeah. have to uh, I didn't really have to keep track of my hours, what I was doing, uh, and we we did some we did, had some very interesting cases. Can you identify 
what happened in your earlier life that you had this sense you wanted to help people? Well, I'm not sure. I always always had this uh, feeling that I was uh, wanted to help those people that. Uh, what, what, what am I thinking? They were the people who were discriminated against. Uh, and like I said, I grew up in a middle class neighborhood. I, a, a lot of the people, a lot of my friends had a whole lot of money. Uh, but I, and I just couldn't deal. I had a hard time dealing with that because they would kind of hold that over some of the other people. So uh, I kind of shied away from that. And I think also partially uh, I, I grew up Jewish. And so it was there was even even though I was from a main, uh, the area in Houston I grew up in was a large Jewish population. A large Jewish population is still maybe 10 or 15 percent of the school. Uh, and really didn't have that much didn't feel that discriminated against, but I, I was aware of it. And so I was always, I think, looking out for the underdog and just felt like I wanted to look out for them. Uh, is there, and I don't know your faith that well, is there something in the teachings or something in your faith that pushes you in that direction? Well, you, I think part of Judaism is you look out for your for your, you know, other, you know, other people. Uh, there's, you know, I think Judaism is the basic basis of of, Catholic, of, of Christianity. Christianity. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's, it's just Christianity, as I understand it, just kind of moved on. Had you know, had some other other things going on. But but yeah, there's a lot of in Christianity. There's a lot of take care of the people who need it. Take care of the people who need it, and. Uh, so at least I think so. Yeah, I, you know, and there's a there's a saying in and uh, Hebrew is tikkun olam, take care of the world. And so I wanted to uh, take care of the world, and take care of, take care of uh, people. And I guess in the legal world, it was I was going to look after the people who were. You know, in a in a bad situation, and make sure that they tried to make sure they got you know what they were entitled to. So, in those early years, is there any particular case that jumps out as is influencing you? You know, not not really. Not that I. I don't think there was any specific case. I worked on a whole lot of different kind of cases, uh, and I, like I said, I, I, I started out thinking I was going to be a criminal lawyer. At legal aid, I was a civil lawyer, and so I was representing people in in civil rights type cases, discrimination cases, a lot of a lot of just meat and potatoes cases with their. Uh, Cars and divorces and bank accounts. Uh, and I said, growing up in Houston, I really had a hard time with the cold, so I stayed in Pueblo for three years. Uh, 
and then decided I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, my wife and I decided, well, maybe we may want to start a family. And I couldn't see uh, raising kids going, you know, with their trying to put coats on and they're walking around with with all those layers on and and me being cold all the time. I mean, I would step outside and I'd turn blue. So we moved, we decided to move back to Austin. And so we moved back to Austin without jobs. And my wife got a, got a job at uh, with a doctor's office and then ended up uh, at the health center at the university. And I ended up uh, getting a job with, uh, also with the university as the director of their student attorney's office. Yeah, I saw that on your LinkedIn account. That's that's an interesting. That was an interesting. What is a student attorney? Well, the student, it was the student. The office of the student's attorney was set up as a resource for the students if they got into some kind of legal trouble. Okay. Then they they could come see me. And I would represent them or advise them of what they could do. Or if they had a civil case, I could represent them as long as it wasn't against the university. <laughs> yeah. Since the so university what kind of was cases paid. Were there? Uh, again, those were all civil cases. There were a lot of, uh, it was things students would get in trouble with. So right. I'd do a lot of towing cases, a lot of landlord tenant cases. Again, I was doing uh, divorce cases. Uh, contracts, cases, uh, anything anything a student could get in trouble with. The drugs were a big thing in the scene then? There were some drug cases, but again, most of those are criminal. Yeah, they're not civil cases. So I couldn't represent them. I could advise them on what to do. Okay. Uh, I set up a system where we would get, uh, I had a referral system for all the attorneys in town. So I'd, I'd contact attorneys and say, would you like to be on our referral list? And most of them would say yes. And I'd, I'd have them fill out a form and uh, I've created a, a book so that if, if a student got into some kind of criminal case or if they got, had a case with where they needed uh, someone to represent them in a high-dollar uh, civil case, where an attorney would take would work basically on a for a fee uh, on a contingency fee, uh, they could look in this book. Attorneys generally would offer some kind of discount for a student for being referred. Uh, the office, you know, I didn't take any money. The office didn't take any money for referring them to the attorneys, so the attorneys didn't have to pay anybody for the referral, uh, and the student would get a deal, and they could look over and see you know, all these different attorneys, and I tell them, go and interview them, see if you like them. So I thought that was a real benefit for them. Uh, and so I was, uh, I represented students. Again, didn't have to seek seek any clients. There were plenty, you know, lots, lots going on. I, I represented students sometimes against the military. Again, they, uh, some, they were, they uh, some people would would get on scholarships, and then on mil on like ROTC scholarships, and then they'd find out they really could not fulfill the terms of that, and they want to get out. So sometimes I'd have to represent people in uh, against the military, uh, trying to get them out of their yeah out of their loans 
basically, you know, the civil case, but yeah, they 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 weren't in the military. Most of them weren't in the military, but they were they were they were getting loans for for being part of the reserves. Ah, okay, and so I'd rep- represent them on on those cases, try to get them out of the obligation that they had, see if there was some way to get them out. Oftentimes there were. Uh, so you've talked an awful lot about civil law, and you've done a lot of different things in civil law. Mitch, how did you get appointed to a criminal that's, judgeship? That's a, that was a, that's a good question. Uh, well, I'd, I'd first I'd applied uh, to be a justice of the peace at one point while I was uh, the student's attorney. I decided I, I thought I would... After working with a lot of judges, I, I would be a good judge. I would be fair and impartial, and I'd listen to people. So I decided I wanted to be a judge. And so at one point, uh, one of the justices of peace openings came open uh, in the district that I was uh, where I lived. Uh, so I applied to be a, a one of the justices of the peace. So I interviewed with the county commissioners. And at that time, this is only a theory, that time one of the commissioners was Bruce Todd, mm-hmm. who was uh, county commissioner for, for Precinct 2, I think. And so I interviewed. I thought I had a very good interview with uh, for justice of the peace. Uh, but there were three people interviewing, and one of them was a woman. And the person who was the justice of the peace was a woman, the one who had to retire. Uh, and so one of the people on the commissioner's court said, unless, unless the person applying was wearing a skirt, they're not going to be appointed. <laughs> so I wasn't going to get appointed. So it turned out, even though I was one of the people nominated, I wasn't going to get appointed. But I had a, had a good interview. Uh, and then I said, well, why not? I'll go ahead and apply to be a municipal judge. You weren't willing to wear a skirt? I wasn't wearing a, willing. To, I could, couldn't wear Back then, I couldn't wear a skirt. You would have had okay. to shave your beard again. <laughs> I would have had to shave the beard again. Oh, at that point, I'm not sure. I have shaved the beard on. It's, yeah. Beards come on and off. Okay. But I've had it for 20 years at a time. For, yeah. So, yeah, I would have had to shave the beard again. Uh, I'm sorry, I sidetracked you. You sidetracked me. So what, what happened when I, when I applied to be a municipal judge... Bruce Todd was the mayor. Ah, yes. So I think I'd had a I'd had a pretty good interview with him when I was uh, applying to be the, the justice of the peace, and then I interviewed with him again uh, when he was the mayor. Uh, he was one of the people interviewing uh, the judges, and I think I had another really good interview. So my theory is he just remembered that and felt bad about not appointing me as the justice of the peace, so he appointed me a municipal judge. Okay. Uh, there were three new municipal judges appointed uh, when I was appointed. There were three new new municipal judges appointed the time, the two years before I was appointed. Back then, the judges were appointed for two year terms. So there was basically when I got appointed, there was a whole new municipal court, uh, the all, all new judges. So I was appointed as a municipal judge in 1994. Okay, and. Served as a municipal judge until the end of 2021. Uh, 20, years. 28 years. We, we're still rolling two-year terms? No. 
that okay. was uh, the two-year terms were were pretty hard on me and pretty uh, all the judges and pretty hard on the turns out I think it was pretty hard on the council also yeah uh, because you you'd get appointed and then they'd almost have to start the reappointment process right away uh, for for the judges that's not a very long time to mm. uh, plan what you're going to do I mean uh, I went through a lot of a lot of reappointment. I interviewed. I remember uh, I went. There was Bruce Todd was the mayor. Kirk Watson was the mayor. Uh, I'm not, you know, our, you know, I've been through a whole lot of mayors. <laughs> yeah. Finally, I guess probably after four or five reappointments, so 10, 12 years later, I guess after I started. Uh, the count the the council decided that they it was better off to have four year terms instead of two year terms. Uh, state law says you can have a four year okay. a four year term unless they change it. So uh, so we went to four year terms. So then I was only had to be go through a reappointment process every four years. So that was a little better. And when you're raising a family, I mean, it, one of the things that uh, yeah, you you look. You want some kind of steady income. Yeah. So I was always, every every four years, I know my wife would get really nervous about, well, what's going to happen if he's not reappointed? <laughs> what are we going to do? I go, well, I guess I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do when Find I grow up. <laughs> figure out what I'll do. And I keep saying, what am I going to do when I grow up? So I remember one, ju- I think one mayor, I think it was actually Kirk Watson told me at one point that uh, it, being a municipal judge wasn't a career. Mm. Uh, but for me, it turned out to be a career. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I enjoyed what I was doing. I thought I was being, I would try to listen to people. Uh, one, th- one thing I, I think I learned was that people just want to be heard. A lot of people just want to be heard. Uh, even if, you know, even if they the outcome doesn't turn out what they want. They feel okay if they think they've been heard. Uh, sometimes that's that's hard in a, in when you're when you're trying to comply with the rules of evidence in a criminal case. Uh, I was I was handling mostly uh, mostly traffic cases. Uh, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of city ordinance violations. Uh, I was dealing with a lot of homeless people. Uh, I would deal with a lot of people 18 to 21 who had alcohol issues. Uh, and some, you know, some of the, some of the minors who were caught with alcohol, uh, they, some of them, a lot of them just, you know, were caught the first time. They didn't really have alcohol problems. Some of them did. Some of them did have alcohol problems. So, I would try to get to the bottom and try to figure out, you know, what was the uh, proper way to deal with the, the people. You know, somebody who, my feeling was somebody who had alcohol one time, uh, if they weren't addicted, they didn't have an alcohol problem, you just kind of let them know that they're violating the law. You know, they really can't do that, and you just kind of, deal with them in, in that manner. If somebody had a problem, and they had a problem with alcohol, then I try to address that, get them the help or treatment that I would think that may be helpful. Did you ever have 
experiences where you didn't really like the law? Oh yeah, there's a, there's there were a lot of the laws that you know that I didn't really agree with, and there were some of the laws that weren't I didn't think were written very well. Uh, personally, I had some problem with the drug laws that that uh, we have. Uh, I believe a lot of our drug laws came into being as a way to discriminate against uh, people of color. Uh, there are some people that have uh, problems with drugs, you know, and they get addicted. There are some people that are just caught with drugs that, you know, in a situation where uh, they didn't have any way out there, you know. Uh, but our, our drug laws were really started, you know, with the, I guess, the long time ago in the in the 40s or 50s with the DEA uh, when they were really just trying to uh, deal with the people of color. And it was a way to, to get them in jail, to they didn't, the people they didn't want to deal with. Uh, a lot of the drugs I didn't think were really harmful for people. My background in college, I was, I was a psychology major in college. <laughs> and one, I remember one of the classes I took was a psychopharmacology class. Wow. And I, I mean, I think I had this professor that was, uh, one of his research projects was uh, giving marijuana to mice. Uh, so, you know, he had, he had to get a, a special dispensation to be able to get the marijuana to give to the mice but you know it was a federal grant so he could he could do that federal research project that's but, a very small cigarette very small very small <laughs> very small cigarette for the mice I'm not sure how he gave it to them but uh, I remember studying we, we we studied the effects of all these drugs on people and a lot of the drugs that are addicting really aren't harmful they're addicting, and if you try to get off of them, they're harmful. But if you don't try to get off of them, they really don't have that many harmful effects on you. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, now, now because they're illegal, people uh, get the drugs and they get addicted. And we weren't doing very much to uh, treat those people. We were putting them in jail instead mm -hmm. of getting them treatment. And... I've, you know, I've been reading books where they're dealing with drugs in different ways in, in, in different parts of the world. They, you know, there's one country that's completely uh, decriminalized, uh, you know, almost any drug. If you, if you get addicted, you go get treatment. You don't go to jail. And they found that people actually uh, will get off the drugs themselves when they, when they do that. Uh, so... I would, I would see drug a lot of drug cases when, when uh, I would be working at the jail, and I would, you know, they were caught and committed a crime, but it would be up to me to set a, a bond on these people or set bail. So as it turned out, I ended up probably set lower bails on drug cases than many of the other judges. Again, believing people were innocent till proven guilty. 
I probably set lower bonds on or lower bail on many of the people than some of the other judges set. I was at least on the low end of most of mm-hmm. them. Again, partially probably uh, uh, looking out for the little guy, you know, people that didn't have money. I mean, if somebody has a lot of money, if you if you set the same bail for them as somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of money, the person who has a lot of money can clearly make bail. They're going to get out of jail. Somebody who doesn't have money can't get out of jail. And that may affect their... Uh, their ability to support their family, support themselves, uh, just because they got caught doing something that, uh, you know, they probably shouldn't have been doing, but uh, is that enough to disrupt their whole life? So I would say bail and let them, you know, let the, let the other judges deal with them later if they are convicted of the charge. Uh, but that didn't always enamor me to the police. <laughs> <laughs> so going through, uh, and, and if somebody, you know, if the police would give me an affidavit that I didn't think met all the all the requirements for proving that somebody committed probable cause, I might not, I wouldn't sign their affidavits. You know, I mean, in that case, I was a strict constructionist. If they, if if uh, if there was a crime committed, they had to show me that clearly there was probable cause they committed it, or I wouldn't sign an affidavit. Tell them if they could fix it, that's fine. But if not, so I, I was never the, the police officer's favorite judge. Uh, I mean, and how I, did you feel about that? Well, I mean, I always, I always want to be friends with everybody. You know, I'm a, I always wanted to be friends with everybody, but. You know, if, if uh, I wasn't going to change the way I looked at uh, did something, if I thought the law required a certain, you know, uh, uh, on a, if probable cause required certain elements, if they didn't meet those elements, I wouldn't get assigned an affidavit. Uh, and again, if, if they didn't always agree with me on the bonds I set. They went with much higher bonds. I go, well, you know, it's a, the, the 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 purpose of bail is to Make sure somebody's going to show up in court and to uh, protect the community. You know, make sure the community is protected. If somebody was charged with an offense and I didn't think they were uh, a threat to the community and they'd show up in court, I'd set a relatively small bail amount. And uh, I don't know. Over over time, I you know generally bails went up. There was bail inflation over the twenty eight years I was I was a judge. I know I start when I started off, uh, the standard bail for somebody who was driving while intoxicated was five hundred dollars. Even I would probably set a just a run of the mill. Driving while intoxicated, standard bail would go up. For, for me, it would probably be fifteen hundred dollars. At you know, after twenty five, twenty eight years, but it was even higher than that for for many of the other judges. So, do you have any statistics on your record of having people come back to court? Because, like you said, bail is to get people coming back to court for their and show up. Right. What do your statistics look like, Mitch? I, I don't know what my statistics look like, okay. to tell you the truth. I, I tried to find that out, but I had a really hard time finding that out. There was just 
the the different computers for the city and the county <laughs> and the county and pretrial services just didn't always talk to each other very well. Yeah. So even though I would try to find that out, I couldn't find that out. It tur- I also was a stickler on trying cases. It turned out I was one of the judges. Rapid. I was one of the judges that had the highest rate for finding people not guilty. Okay. So let's let's. It's it's a pretty clear story. Something happened young, you know, that got you on this path. Yeah. And you've lived it, and um, the perspective of what's going on today in our world. Can you just kind of? Give us a little thought of that before we call it an interview today. I don't know if I'm the big picture guy. Uh, I'm not. I'm not really sure how I tie it in. Again, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm doing some visiting judge work now, so I try to bring again uh, the. Ability to just listen to people and, and uh, again, giving those people an opportunity to be heard. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, when I, when I talk to my, uh, the people I used to work with, you know, make sure that they understand that people just want to be heard. Uh, most of the people I work with, you know, they try, they want to be fair. They want to follow the law. Uh, it, they have different ideas of, of, you know, when someone's guilty or not guilty, but, you know, I think they're doing what they think is right. Uh, and, you know, but I, I always want to stress that, you know, it, it is real important to, to listen to people because without listening to them, you don't know what they need. If you find, a, if find somebody guilty, you really, you know, you want to deal with those people. Uh, uh, just, Giving somebody a fine, somebody who can't pay a fine, get, having them do community service to satisfy a fine, yeah, it's not going to really uh, doesn't benefit this. Doesn't really benefit anybody if you find something that that maybe can help change their lives. Then uh, you want to do that. That's what I was. That's always trying to do. Trying to help people to uh, see the way and you know to be safe. And be able to go forward. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm going to cut away from you. And you got any last words? I think we found our title for this this segment. People just want to be heard. Yes. And okay. I love that. Okay. So let's back to our friend, Mitch Solomon, who does Tai Chi with us. Mitch, we really appreciate you being here, and thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about your service as a, as a judge and an attorney. And, you know, you've been doing this work for a long time. You started in Pueblo, and you're still doing it. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing it. It shows. Yeah. All right. I am going to... Stop the recording. Wow. That was some career. Mitch has just really done a lot for people and for himself, it sounds like. So I hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. Just uh, 
click down below and you'll find out when we send out a new one. So good luck and have a great day.